1: Do you like sports? Cause we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's sports, Jack. Sports, Jack. It's
2: sports, Jack. Are we going to see Brian Kelly return the Irish to the playoffs
3: in 2020?
2: No, no, nope. That's that. I did not say that.
3: Or at any time.
2: Yeah, affirmative.
3: I think they will make one more playoff run during his tenure
1: okay okay family broadcasting corporation well, in association with the studio dna podcast network presents oh sports yak oh one host knows sports and who's right there the other doesn't know sports but somehow they meet in the middle Here's your host, Corey Mann. Get your big butt out of here! And Indiana Sports Broadcast Hall of Famer, this one will be relived Chuck Freebie. Forever! Well,
3: I am pleased to renew acquaintances with the guy that started at WNDU back in 1996. I was already there. He comes in from parts unknown. He would eventually leave WNDU. Well, he's gone on to do okay for himself. It's ESPN's Tom Rinaldi, the Duke. How are you, my friend? So forgettable was my tenure. Oh, please.
2: That in the first 30 seconds of this episode of the Yak, my first two years at WNDU apparently didn't happen. I arrived there, Chuck. I did not arrive in 96. I I left in 96. Apparently my departure was more notable. No, come on. 93.
3: You got in in time for the Florida State game? I did, as well as the game that was after it. That's right, because I do remember a certain senior producer of the Saturday morning <laughs> show at one time telling a young newbie reporter, Tom Rinaldi, there's no need to scream, you have a microphone and a transmitter, everybody can hear you. <laughs> So
2: that's a reference to one of my earliest live shots at a tailgate. We had launched a Saturday morning show. Ellen Crook was the news director. We're not going to go too far uh, down nostalgia lane here, we hope, but the the line remained, and Chuck brings it up and slays me with it with perfect comedic timing. After maybe my second or third live shot ever, apparently with unbeknownst to me. I was screaming at the top of my lungs, I'm sure, pegging the old analog monitor where you saw the needle. And the feedback when I asked how did I do was, you did well. You have a microphone.
0: (laughs) We have
2: transmitters. You're not directly trying to reach everyone in the viewing area with your voice through the window. That was the feedback I got from Jack O'Bringer. And I've hopefully taken it to heart.
3: I think you have. I think you've done all right. But your story, the stories that you do are terrific. And I know you don't like to talk about your story. And I apologize, first of all, for getting the dates wrong. But I also apologize for never really sitting down with you and asking you this question in person. You are a teacher and a handball coach in New York City. Why in the world did you come to WNDU? Best job
2: offer I got. <laughs> <laughs> I was at, when I got out of college, I went to college in uh, Philly. I went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and my, my first job was as a teacher at a private school in Pittsburgh. And I was a coach there. I coached uh, basketball and soccer. And then I went to, Morris High School in the South Bronx in New York City, and I taught there. I coached handball, as you mentioned. After doing that for a number of years, I went back to school for one year for journalism at the, in the city at Columbia, and really the f- the first best job offer I got was at WNDU, and this says something that I took a probably a cut in pay of nearly a Third, from being a teacher to
4: starting
2: at WNDU, um, where I was a one-man band. Chuck, you would work with the late Jeff Jeffers there, and yeah. we're doing such a tremendous job with the sports department. Obviously, so much of the coverage centered on Notre Dame and its football and basketball teams, but also the incredible job you did, which was brand new to me in covering the phenomenon of Friday Night Football and high school games to the degree that i have never seen growing up in New Jersey. There's great football, high school football in New Jersey, make no mistake, but it is not receiving extended airtime on a New York City local station. And I remember one of the, the first things that I loved most about the job, I loved working at WNDU, but I looked forward to the Friday nights where I was among the folks that went out and shot highlights and tried to get from uh, you know two or three schools to catch you know and, and as soon as you got a touchdown or a score or two, oh, yeah then you moved, the next, <laughs> right, you moved on to the next right uh, and moved on to the next school and I, I really really loved that that was really the first most direct way I covered sport in the media was with a camera on my shoulder shooting the Friday night games at and every place from Goshen to the South Bend schools to you know to Penn to a lot of the dominant powers there in South Bend.
3: It amazes me that I had guys like you, Mike Tussell, who is a a big-time anchor out in Sacramento at KCRA. I had these guys, Corey, shooting high school games for me on a Friday night. Got to start somewhere. I was very blessed to have such talented people uh, working with me, and Tom threw himself into the job, as you can tell that he still does. Where did that passion for driving yourself come from
2: one of the reasons that you point out that you had people who've gone on and, and uh, gone, done some other things but let me point out that i think one of the reasons you engendered people enlisted people to shoot that way and work with you is because of you your attitude you were incredibly appreciative incredibly inclusive at no point did you ever were you ever anything other than encouraging and nurturing of people who really were. I mean, this was learning to eat with a knife and fork. That's how basic it was. That's how basic my skill set was as I started. You know, you looking at the way I had shot something high school-wise and saying that was good, or maybe it would be better to be here. Or as you edit the highlight together, Tom, it can't be seven minutes, son. got to be, you know... 16 seconds. So, let's work on that. <laughs> really. You, you were a great great help and very encouraging.
3: But you are always a very even at WNDU. You were a very good writer and this is what you're known for now is your your writing, your essays, your feature work. Where did that skill of being able to write come from?
2: Television is largely so bereft of writing. Uh, writing is hard work, but I think if if you have any facility as a writer, it, it can stand out in TV if you're marrying it or trying to marry it properly to the, the sound and the vision. If anything, that's where perhaps the strength comes from. I mean, I, I will say that in you know, at Columbia, if you wanted to, at the time I was there a million years ago, if you wanted to concentrate in television and learn how to shoot and edit, that was fine. But that came after the fundamentals of reporting and writing, their bedrock course. So... I I can I'll just share this very brief anecdote. I do remember in a class at Columbia, a professor wrote a sentence on the board, small class, about 15 students. He wrote a sentence on the board and he said he asked the class, who wrote this? And I raised my hand and he said, that's right. You wrote it, Rinaldi. And do you know what I think when I read this sentence? I think it's not that you just write bad sentences, Rinaldi. It's that you're a bad person. <laughs> wow. And I never, ever forgot that line. It was so, it was phenomenal. Um, and he pointed out why the sentence was so poor. And hopefully I learned from that, and I'm continuing to learn.
4: Tom Rinaldi's on ESPN. If someone were to ask me who my radio heroes were, I'm going to rattle off Kevin Matthews, Larry Lujak, Stephen Gary, If I ask Chuck who his sports broadcasting heroes are, Ben Scully comes to his breath pretty quickly. When you look at your profession and what you do, and who are your heroes, who did you look to when you started your craft, particularly at ESPN? Who who was doing it right, in your opinion?
2: Well, I, I think my first hero never went into the business. He doesn't work in media at all. And that's my brother, who I believe has met Chuck. Corey, my brother Robert, who works for the Federal Reserve and is the greatest sports fan in the United States. He went to Fordham where Vin Scully went. Two of my brother's closest friends to this day are Mike Breen and Michael K. And they were classmates of his at Fordham and they worked together at WFUV, which is still an absolute powerhouse of a university radio station, meaning it's a 50,000-watt serving the metropolitan area radio station, but gives students at Fordham a great opportunity, including my brother and Breen and Kay. So hearing my brother do sports reports and sports updates and then hearing him announce games, that opened my eyes to the fact that maybe... If the opportunity presented itself, I could move in that direction. I didn't initially. I was a teacher, as we discussed, but then I moved in this direction. So really my brother would be the first one. In some of the other pursuits that I have there, the list is really, really long, guys. You know, Mike Breen remains, I think, the absolute standard in play-by-play. I'm deeply biased. I love him. I've known him since I'm 12 years old. But the reason I say that is because I think Mike is technically excellent. I mean, if you go back and you look at the malice in the palace, the brawl, Mm -hmm. which has never happened before in the history of the NBA, go back on YouTube and listen to that call. Mike is perfect. That's incredible to chronicle something unprecedented and that volatile and unpredictable in the way that he does. And still does sets up his analyst, selfless in his calls, has a very organic catchphrase. He's just phenomenal in terms of in terms of writers and people who do feature work. I mean, there's so many who are so strong. And I, you know, I think Jeremy Shat is phenomenal and does great great work. I I think Jimmy Roberts has done great great work for a long time. I think there's producers at you know different places. Pete Radovich and there's an, uh, Susan Rinaldi, not no relation, who's worked at CBS and who's fantastic. We have such a stable of producers at ESPN, all, you know, innumerable, Kristen Lapis and Rustin and Jose Morales and Victor Vitarelli and John Fish, these incredible producers, guys, who put me in a position for our projects to succeed
4: you have a lot of your work on online on YouTube, and I started watching what I would call the Rinaldi pieces. Can I pick a Rinaldi piece and you walk me through the process of how that came to fruition? Can we do that? So I've watched uh, the Trevor Lawrence sit down. I've watched a couple of coaches sit down. But I was watching, in particular, the Urban Meyer interview, the Courtney Smith story. Yes. And yeah. can you walk us through the process of how how you had to deal with that? Yeah,
2: that's it. I found it uh, really—I I never thought in a million years, Corey, that you that that's what you would have picked. Because I think there are times that people view some of the pieces that I'm a part of very differently than that. That they're pieces of sentiment, or you know, critically judged, sap. You know, more generously judged that they're they heartfelt, but. I certainly wouldn't characterize the sit down with Urban in that way. I think it was earnest, but it certainly there wasn't any sap coming from the tree. I mean, I think it was a hard situation for Urban Meyer, and it was a challenging interview to conduct. For those who are listening and you know aren't overly familiar, Urban had gone through a uh, incredibly difficult time in the wake of what he would eventually do in coming to fire an assistant coach who was. Accused by his ex-wife of domestic violence, she had accused him of domestic violence against her. There are a lot of complications and turns and uh, convolutions in the particular story and what happened. But this was the first principal sit-down that Urban Meyer did. He chose to do it on our platform. Uh, it aired on Sports Center on Game Day. Um, you know, it aired on all our platforms. And I had known Urban since he was the coach at Utah. Uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to sit down with him. He chose to sit down with us. You know, I, I'd be very curious, Corey, as to what your, your takeaway was watching that in two ways. Number one, what struck you about the interview? There's, You know, the interview in total was 70 minutes. We put together, I believe, two seven- or eight-minute parts of it, so it ultimately was 15 minutes long. What struck you about it, Corey?
4: I think Chuck told me that you and Urban have a relationship, a friendship. So part of me thought, okay, if there's anyone I'm going to trust to do this, it'll be Tom. And maybe Urban was familiar with your work, so he knew what he was getting himself into question-wise. I'm wondering what was on the editing room floor. I'm wondering if he just, I'm not going to answer that. Or do you have to turn in a... Hey, Urban, here's where we're going. Here's what I'm going to ask you if you prepare. You weren't trying to catch him off guard. You were asking the questions that I think the common fan would ask in that situation. That's what I got out of it.
2: Okay. I think Chuck would, would dive in here and tell you that, for example, Corey, and I can't speak to the way everyone works or what best standards of practices are elsewhere, but I can tell you, like, providing the questions would never happen. It, it instantly cut right? You would agree with that, Chuck, right?
3: You, you and, give a framework, but you're not going to give specific questions.
2: Right, and, and explain why that is, Chuck, why?
3: You're trying to get honest and earnest answers on the questions. And if you give the questions ahead of time, what you tend to get are PR-type answers.
2: Well said. Yeah, well said and they're not as you know they're not authentic urban i think you know i think you can say to somebody listen and i said this to urban prior you know urban you you can largely anticipate what i'm going to ask it falls into two general categories right and and that's perception and procedure what did you do and how has it been perceived and that's and i think the questions did fall in in those lines. When the interview was done, I think Urban thought the interview was very, very hard. So did Shelly, his wife. And so there was a, you know, a time afterward in the house in which I stayed and listened to their concerns and critiques about it because I'd known Urban, you know, and I still do. And I still text back and forth with him. You know, to me, Corey, when, and I'd be interested in Chuck's take or your take on this not only Chuck in your role and what you do, but Corey in in you as a consumer of the, the parts of the media that you like or are critical of, what is perceived to be a tough question? To me, many times, the toughest question is the simplest. Sure. Because it simply puts the burden on the subject. Did you do it? Did you lie? is a patently easy question. It's a closed question and the quick answer there is just no, not at all. And you've just taken you've taken that question, handled it in four words and on we go. A much tougher question I think is and I this is a question I've asked in different contexts many many times guys is you know, what was your fear? Or in this particular interview Uh, Without getting into the weeds on everything, there was a point early on in Urban's relationship with this couple where they had had difficulty, and he had suggested that they get counseling. There was the suggestion made by the wife that there had been domestic violence in the home, and Urban had suggested to them that they get counseling. Here, I think, is a question, and I don't know if folks would find this question fair, easy, hard. I find it simply open. What qualified you to give that advice? Right. So if you're sitting there, Corey, and, and you get that question, I think that's an, an effective and tough question. It's so simple. I don't think it's judgmental at all. You can answer it any way you wish. But its burden is completely upon the subject. Because at the end of the day, guys, right, and I think – I think this is true in what you do, Cor. I know it's true in what Chuck and I do. If Chuck is going to tell a story, present a highlight, at the end of the day, if you've done it really well, what people are left with is the story, is the highlight. They're not left with your presentation of it. Right. Maybe this is an oversimplification as an analogy, guys. And believe me, we can both look to the stars in our respective industries and say they absolutely violate this tenant. So maybe all of us are doing it wrong and they're doing it right. But to me, if you're doing it right, you're just a pane of glass. It's about the view. It's about the subject, yeah. not about the storyteller.
3: How do you come away from... A story, an interview, any kind of presentation that you do, and say that was good, that was successful. What is your measure of success?
2: What a great, great question. So I'd say I've been in, I've been with ESPN since uh, 2 and so now we're coming on 18 years. It'll be, and I, and I, this is not overstated. I would say in the feature work I've done, the number of pieces I've done that were, and this is the word I use, that were right. You watched them, and they were right. You wouldn't change anything. You would, I'd say maybe I've achieved that five times in 18 years.
3: What would Eight. be one of those?
2: I think maybe, maybe the man in the red bandana is right.
3: Well, I have to think so, because... It was a powerfully told story,
2: but, but let me let me give you an example of one that that to me, and this is on me. I you know the the responsibility here is with me, and again, it's my lens and how I'm viewing it. A lot of times, you know, television is deeply collaborative, as you guys know, and so is a morning show, and you know, it's it's a collaboration. We had the unbelievable opportunity to take a national champion and captain from Notre Dame back to Vietnam, Rocky Blyer. he never returned to Vietnam where he served. He was drafted in his rookie season with the Steelers. And in the Heptuck Valley in Vietnam in 1969, he was shot. And then after crawling back to his platoon, he was hit with a, a grenade exploded beneath one of his feet. He agreed to come back with us. John Fish, the producer, worked on it forever to align, to get Rocky's schedule aligned and and the willingness, et cetera. He drops off his daughter at Notre Dame. He embarks for the journey from South Bend Airport. That's where he started the journey to go to Danang. Ultimately, we get Rocky on the field where this happened. It's 50 years later. It doesn't look like it once did. The, the rice patty is drained. It's dry. It had, actually, it had actually been planted with trees and then deforested. He's overcome emotionally, and he didn't think he would be. And then he collapses. We're, night, we're an hour and a half away from a clinic, and he suffers heat stroke we don't know that at the time. We right. don't know if he's having a cardiac event, et cetera. So we're tending to him. One cameraman, one of our cameras, Logan and Kesha, rolled on this, which I didn't even know mm-hmm. because we're so concerned with that Rocky's going to be okay. And then he does, he recovers, and he, then he's determined to go back again. He, we go back again. He breaks down again. Again, the the name of this is The Return. You can, you know, if you looked it up, The Return, Rocky Blyer, ESPN, you can see it. I I did see it, yep. Then you're tasked, guys, with how much of telling, how much of his story, if you're going to do it in half an hour, which is a wonderful amount of time, how much of the story, as I describe it to you, you got got Chuck certainly, and I presume, Corey, you do know his story, how much of his story now should be that? in 25 minutes should be the drama of in the field, overcome, collapse, take them to the clinic, come back to the field, how much?
3: Well, and that's tough to say because your audience, a good portion of your audience probably has no familiarity with Rocky Blyer.
0: That you is ha-
2: so well said, Chuck. That is so. Well- where do you think the generational cutoff? Yeah, well, well, I know that cutoff line is too hard a standard, but where do you think if you're below? Well, I'll ask you this, Corey, If you're below what age do you not really know much about Rocky Blyer?
3: Forty. I was going to say forty-five. Forty. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Maybe right, Chuck. Maybe even forty-five. You know, he's one of the the very few players ever to be drafted and then to serve and then to be wounded. And then we're not even getting, you know, Chuck, Corey knows all the beats of there's a very famous episode in his life, a famous moment in his life. He, he gets ultimately to the hospital in Tokyo and a doctor who we found told him, you're never going to play football again. You know, you're going to, you're going to walk again with a lot of work. But playing football, pro football now, and he goes on to win four rings and become Franco Harris's running mate as a you know, et cetera, et cetera.
3: But uh, you have you have to take quite a bit of time yeah. to tell that part of the story. But
2: the, with the reason you yes, ask, you know, when you get it right, guys, what is success like finding that ratio? I think eluded me. It did, and, and John Fish did such an incredible job as the producer. Bill Roach, our shooter in the field, unbelievable. They were incredible, but that ratio, that was hard. And I don't, and I think it eluded us, eluded me, because there's that, that's real time drama. Now it's just captured with one camera, not multiple cameras, and the edit challenges and all that, as you know, Chuck, but. And then the notion of going to Rocky and saying, Rocky, you know, this happened. We want to present this. We don't want to, you know, do anything that sacrifices your dignity. And have Rocky being like, no, what are you really talking about? That happened. I mean, I think the story is strong. I think people have been very kind and reacted very powerfully to it. Most importantly, Rocky did. And he felt that his his story was told properly.
4: It got a little heavy there. Let's do a couple of wiffle ball lobs. Okay. Yeah, you got it. 2017, your segment... College alumni can always find a bar in New York City. <laughs> the question, yep. how buzzed were you at the end of that day?
2: Can I tell you how many drinks were consumed? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> because the logistics were so nightmarish
1: in Manhattan
2: to get from place. And it wasn't like, you know, these fine upstanding men of great moral character and fiber made a decision. No. It just... After making this pledge that we would do so, it just fell apart instantly. Well, just everyone was always concerned about where is the van and did we take the light, and (laughs) so that never happened. No, we didn't have a single drink,
4: zero buzz. Have you ever met the musician who creates your segment music in the key of F sharp? The keyboard pad, (laughs) you know, the 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 setting. Have you ever met that person?
2: So that's library music. You're being a little snotty now because I know you know better
1: than
2: that. <laughs> there are music services that provide it. However, I will tell you, I'm not on any social media platforms. Long story for another time. But I can tell you, every once in a while, someone will send me a tweet that they find particularly funny or clever or snarky. And one of the best was, I guess somebody took a picture of me boarding a plane, and it's, and the caption was, How does he fit the piano in the overhead?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Good one, good one. Who is the biggest name in your cell phone? I'm guessing I know one, but I'm wanting Tiger Woods.
3: Affirmative. How have you developed that relationship with him? Because it does seem like you two have a very solid relationship.
2: You know, he's, for whatever reason... And I say this about any number of other guys in sport, and I'm sure you would too, Chuck. For whatever reason, he has been he's been great with me from the very beginning. And if he if he were on the line or he were here and I suggested this is why, I'm sure he would dismiss it with some he's a world class needler. I'm sure he would dismiss it and say it's crazy. But uh, when I did, I think the very first sit down I did with him I wrote him a note and I sent the note to Mark Steinberg, his agent, you know, which uh, who I said, will he really, will he, you really give it to him? Mark's line was great. He's like, yeah, what am I going to do with it? I don't want it. <laughs> 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 which I thought was great. And I didn't see Tiger for a couple of months. And sure enough, you know, there's a big press gaggle and he gets done with the gaggle and he's walking out the back of the press center and he sees me out of the corner of his eye. And he says, thanks for your note.
3: The power of the handwritten thank you note. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: I think that, uh, but again, he probably dismissed that.
3: That's probably a creation in
2: my own head. But I I will tell you this. I've shared this just a couple of times that, uh, well, I lost my dad in uh, six and a half years ago. And again, I'm not on any social media. I have no idea how any of the people in who I cover or who are involved in the sports that I'm a part of covering would know, but people were wonderful. I mean, uh, Nick and Terry Saban sent flowers to the funeral home, and Urban reached out, and I mean, there uh, were people showed a lot of kindness. But I got one note, I, I would not entirely, but partially handwritten, and that was from Tiger. That's him. That, that, that's, I mean, that's a side of him I don't know that people necessarily see all the time, but that that absolutely, and I, again, guys, I think you would both say this about the different people you met in your life. You don't forget that.
3: You're married. You have children. How do you balance all the travel that you have to do, and it's a lot, with raising a family?
2: yeah I mean, listen, I won the lottery. It's the greatest gig there is, but... They paid for the ticket. And our son is 15. He's a a 10th grader in high school um, playing JV basketball and baseball. Jack, our daughter, Tess, dances four days a week. You know, and I'm away a lot. Uh, The line that I've used a thousand times and Diane would roll her eyes at it is, you know, that I don't know the exact seating chart in heaven, but she's three seats from Jesus. She just is the greatest. Her patience for all the travel. But I also am blessed not to have guys in office life. You know, I'm talking to you from home right now. And when I'm not on the road, I write here, I narrate here, I record here. Believe me, we live in a very small house, one bathroom for four people. But it works here. Everything works because of Diane. Everything.
3: What have you not done yet that you want to do?
2: Yeah, that's a long list, Chuck, to be honest. But, you know, I think I haven't done it because to some of the most important fundamentals like talent and discipline and time. It was a dream to be able to write a book. And, that was, and it was such a tremendous process. I mean, we were fortunate to book The Red Bandana, which was a book version of this story we referred to earlier. It's not a sports story. It's a story about one life lost in 9-11 that was a great experience. And I'd like to write another, that's one, but I, I also, you know, I've written a, a treatment for a scripted series and I'm in the midst of trying to write the, the pilot script for that. Uh, again, that, you know, I, that's a space I don't work in. I, I would need a lot of help, but the challenge of trying it is energizing and difficult and demanding. That's something else. I, uh, and really, you know, I'd love to be able to do something, not only a not only a scripted series, I'd love to be able to do a docu series too. Uh, and I think that's that's maybe more plausible or easier to do, considering we do it in different phases. And ESPN Plus is, has an explosion of content and across different sorts of lengths and presentation styles. It's a great, great time for content because there's such a proliferation of ways to receive it and ways to consume it. So there's a lot, lot that I'd really like to do. I'd also like to do something that I used to do, which is, you know, at some point here, I'd I'd like to teach again as well.
4: What are you working on now as we record this?
2: In terms of what I'm working on now, event-wise, the, the next few things on my docket will be the Masters, the PGA Championship. I have uh, three or four NBA sideline assignments coming up, a couple with the Sixers, um, have the, uh, the Spurs and Mavs. So a, a few of those mixed in. Feature-wise, going next week to uh, Montana, we th- this piece is done. We've done a half-hour piece about – the Blackfeet Indian Reservation and the plight of missing and murdered indigenous women in that particular part of the world, even though it's a plight which affects indigenous women all over. And the sports focus there is about a gym, a boxing gym, which was created there to try to help, Girls and young women protect themselves, mm. develop, develop the self-esteem, the confidence, and really to be part of a, a community beyond their own families that can help them because they're incredibly vulnerable. And uh, that that's called not invisible. So this is what I mean about it being a lottery-winning gig that I can that I could do things which are as straightforward as the sideline at the Rose Bowl or the national championship in college football and then have the opportunity to meet incredible people like those who we've met at the gym or um, on the Blackfeet reservation.
3: Let's wrap up with just a little bit of a lightning round of some wiffle ball questions the kind of questions that I'm sure if somebody sat down for a beer with you they would be asking you. Favorite overall venue that you've been to?
2: So it's a tie, uh, and the tie is probably like 10 venues, but here are two. Rose Bowl, All-England Club, and Augusta.
3: So those three, Wimbledon, Masters, Rose Bowl. Yeah. Favorite on-campus college site?
2: Wow. I mean, I think any time, Chuck, when the Irish play Navy, like they, you know, Anytime you can go to the academies right it's in, it just it's incredible it's incre- what you walk away from you both you feel simultaneously like a fraction of a, of a person and yet you feel inspired to be twice the person that you are it's it's a tremendous experience to go any any visit to an academy is incredible
3: and to think that it all began shooting games for me at school field
2: <laughs> exactly exactly, thank you so much for having me guys. I really appreciate it again I hope we haven't bored the the listeners here to tears, but uh and and I really, really mean what I said chuck you're you've always been just one of the absolute kindest uh, most authentic, most generous people in the business that I'll ever know
3: with all the Achievements that you've had and all the notoriety, and notoriety is a two way street that you've had, you still remain humble. You like to defer the credit to just about everybody. Look at all the producers and photographers that you've mentioned, and yet you're a man of tremendous talent and skill, and I'm just happy to have you as a friend.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: We've had some fun. Yeah, the show is done. Now we gotta run. It's for Jack. Studio audience. We done? You've been listening to Sports Yak with Chuck freebie and Corey Mann as himself. Oh, Produced by Corey Mann, the Sports Yak theme song by Rhett Walker, production elements and voiceovers by AudibleGenesis.com. Oh, yes. Engineered by Phil Souza, executive producer is Danae Hughes in partnership with the Studio DNA Podcast Network. Interested in your own podcast? Contact Danae at danae at studiodna.media. From the parking lot! Sports Yak archives available on iTunes, Spotify, and Spreaker.com.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for 4 dollars each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.